Welcome to the Space Door Podcast. You're listening to our Space Talk special episode, Meet an Astronaut. This is a recording of our live Meet an Astronaut special with the former NASA astronaut and ISIS commander holding the NASA record for the most spacewalks and most time spacewalking at 67 hours and 40 minutes, Michael Lopez Alegria. We discuss how it feels to be leading SpaceX Axiom 1 Space 1, the first all-commercial crew to the ISS in early 2022, what he's most looking forward to, especially going back after 15 years, which of his 10 spacewalks is his favourite, Michael's astronaut selection process, his involvement with Space Tour, all alongside loads more interesting questions and conversations with one of the most experienced astronauts in the world. The Space Talk special is also available to watch in wonderful Technicolor along with the Space Talk and Space Roundup on the Space Door YouTube channel, youtube.com forward slash Space Door Live. A very warm welcome to everyone joining us on Space Door Live tonight. Uh, we've got an incredible show for you coming right up and it's the biggest event yet on Space Door Live. So wherever you're joining us from across the globe, a very warm welcome to you. Strap in because we've got an amazing show coming up. Now, astronauts are incredible people. Uh, they, strap them, they strap themselves into rockets and fly into space at speeds we cannot even imagine at going at. Now tonight in the house, we've got one of these incredible people and his name is Michael Lopez Alegria. He's a former NASA record holder, former astronaut and commander of the ISS. How are you doing, Michael? I'm well, Lex, thank you. And it's good to be here with you and the Space Store team. Great, I can't wait. I'm so, I've been so excited um, for the past two months. We've, we've planned this talk. Um, I'm raring to go, ask you so many questions um, and get audience in, questions in from the audience. So if you're tuning in on YouTube or Facebook, Remember, uh, we're gonna be having a Q&A session later on during the talk. Um, so you can send us in your questions then. But let's get started um, with you, Michael. How, how, thank you so much for tuning, tuning, tuning in. Uh, yeah, it's, it's a pleasure to be here. Go ahead. It's a pleasure and an honor to have you on the show. Um, and I have a bunch of questions I can't wait to ask you. Um, Go ahead. So my first one is like, what inspired you to become an astronaut? And did you always want to be one growing up? Well, always is a big word. Uh, I wanted to be one when I was a kid. I was 11 years old when um, humans first set foot on the moon. And I remember that moment uh, quite well. And it was very inspirational. I was at the beach with my family at the moment of the landing. And, you know, the parents were calling us out of the water and we were asked to join them as we huddled around our blankets and we're listening to the final moments of the descent on our transistor radios. And when Neil Armstrong said the famous words, the eagle has landed, all these uh, adults who were heretofore complete strangers started hugging each other and slapping each other on the back like they were, you know, old friends or, or family members. And that really marked me as a child. So of course I wanted to become an astronaut immediately. And I started playing astronaut, you know, with my friend and uh, of course things changed. And as I got older, that dream sort of faded, mm -hmm. but then later in life, 
I had gone to the Naval Academy, I studied engineering, and I had become a, a naval aviator, a pilot. And I was interested in combining aviation and engineering, and that's what test pilots do. And I was looking into becoming a test pilot, and I, I read an article about all the graduates of test pilot school who had gone on to become astronauts. Yeah. And it was, you know, the same heroes that I had had as a kid. And I really um, had the, the dream reborn again and kind of followed it until, until today. Wow, that's amazing. And what, what was the moment like, like the day you found out that you're going to be a NASA astronaut? Yeah, it's, um, so it's a very long selection process. And if you're lucky, you end up getting a phone call from the chairman of the selection board. And if you're lucky enough to make it all the way to the final round, but are not selected, you get a call from a different person. And so but the moment you answer the phone, you know which the answer is. And uh, it's, you know, dream of a lifetime to come true. Uh, that, must been, that must have been an amazing moment, like picking up the phone and hearing, hearing someone say you're, you're a NASA astronaut. <clears throat> yeah, it's, it's well, life changing, honestly. I mean, it's, um, it's something that seems very, very out of reach. And it goes from being a zero to a one, you know, in the in the passage of, of a second. That's awesome. Well, let, just to let everyone know um, a little a little bit of what's coming up, we're actually going to have a segment where we've got pre-recorded question from some quids uh, that Michael is going to be answering. And then after that, we're going to have a live Q&A session. Um, but let's talk a little bit about a very exciting mission that's coming up next year the SpaceX Axiom-1 mission, which was only announced um, about a couple of months ago. So can, do you want to tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, I'd love to. Axiom Space is a company based in Houston, Texas, uh, who wants to build a commercial space station to succeed the International Space Station, which, as you may know, is a government program. It's a cooperative uh, arrangement between five space agencies from around the world. But it's a machine, and as such, it will wear out one day. It can't stay up there forever. And it has to be sort of deorbited carefully while we still have good control over it. So sometime this decade, probably, the decision will be made to deorbit the space station. And from that point on, the agencies have not shown any desire to build a follow-on government-funded platform. So we aim to provide a commercial platform that those governments and other private users can use instead of having to pay for the entire infrastructure, they would buy use of the ISS, I mean, as a, of the Axiom station as a service from us. So prior to that, we're planning to launch our first module to dock to the ISS in 2024, and then add a couple more and then eventually wait until a decision is made to deorbit the space station and we would separate and become independent. But prior to that, we're executing precursor missions to the ISS as it exists today. This is part of NASA and the other partners attempt to commercialize low Earth orbit. You know, historically, governments do the very difficult and risky initial exploration of an area, whether it's geographic or in the case of space, uh, sort of a, a different environment. But once it's been proven to be safe and there's a profit incentive, then it's time for the governments to get out of the way and let private enterprise come in. 
So that's kind of where we are in low Earth orbit. The moon and Mars, that's still very much the purview of governments because it's it's still quite, quite risky. And I don't want to minimize the risk going to low Earth orbit either. But low Earth orbit is a place we've been going for 60 years now, and we, we kind of know how to do that. So was with the NASA and the other agencies are doing is opening up the ISS to allow private astronaut missions. Mm -hmm. And I'll be commanding the first of those missions in history in about a year's time with uh, three other private astronauts. Um, and we'll be spending about 10 days in space, eight days aboard the ISS. And it will look much like a regular astronaut mission. Each of them have a small science portfolio of experiments that they'll be doing. They'll be doing some outreach to organizations and some philanthropy. So it's going to look a, a lot like um, a regular NASA or European Space Agency mission, except the participants other than myself will not have been professionally trained as a regular astronaut, but rather a reduced training of about 15 weeks to get them ready for the flight. Wow. Okay. I was watching. I was watching one of your TEDx talks that you gave in back in 2012, and you were speaking about the future of human spaceflight, and you were saying how it is basically going to be commercial. And how how does it feel to actually be commanding the first commercial crew? And did you did you know back then in 2012 that this could be something that you would do? I had no idea. That was in 2012, almost exactly nine years ago. I had just left NASA probably a month prior. And um, I got into commercial space after leaving NASA because I really came to believe in it um, in my final years there. I'll, I'll tell you a story. My last mission, which was in 2006, I was flying uh, with a Russian colleague on a Soyuz to the ISS. And the third person was a, um, a non-professional and I wasn't too crazy about the idea you know I felt like I had trained my whole life and it wasn't a, a domain for people who were not experienced etc cetera, etc cetera. but when I flew with this person I became became to understand I came to understand how important it is which she her name is Anusha Ansari yeah and when she was she was doing something brand new called blogging and she was letting people on earth know what was going on you know who otherwise would not have cared about human spaceflight and i really oh, began wow. to understand this concept of democratizing access to space and that's why i left um, nasa to come work in washington for the commercial spaceflight federation and i had no idea that i'd ever get a chance to fly again on a commercial mission but you know here we are it's a great surprise wow Wow, because I think last time you went to, to space was 2007. Yeah, I came home and in 2007. I launched in 2006. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So how, how does it feel going back after this? I mean, it's it, it would be a dream come true for any former astronaut, I think, to go back to space. I and mean, there's no doubt about it. There's It's just something, it's a magical experience. And we all feel extraordinarily privileged. I think as you look back at your career, you gain an appreciation uh, even more for it with every story you tell or every question you answer. And while you're in the middle of it, you don't really know just how special it is. But when you look back at it, you really do gain that appreciation. And then for somebody to say after, you know, in my case, almost 15 years, would you like to go back? I mean, as I, as I said, it's, it's like a gift. 
And for me particularly, who's been a proponent of commercial human spaceflight for a long time, to be able to command the first commercial mission to the ISS is like the icing on the cake. Yeah. Wow, that's crazy. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit more about your selection process uh, for becoming a NASA astronaut. Um, and how, how did that go? Like, was were you, were you quite confident through the process? As I mentioned before, it's a long process, and I would say nobody is confident because it's a real crapshoot, as we say. Um, it starts, I was in the military, so I had to apply to my parent service, the U.S. Navy. All the other military uh, members did the same. And then all of the civilians, which by number dwarf the number of military applicants, applied directly to NASA. And then there's a series of screenings, you know, they have um, first just clerical folks going through the applications to make sure you meet all the minimum requirements. And then they get the experts involved to, to look at the quality of your education and your experience. And then finally, astronauts um, make another pass to the records that, that still um, remain in the selection. And from that pool, about 100 people are invited to go to the NASA Johnson Space Center in Houston for what they call an interview. I say what they call an interview because the interview is one hour out of an entire week. And the rest of it is some pretty extensive medical tests, as you can imagine. You know, the interview is very relaxed. It's very informal. And they, you know, having been on the other side of it, I sat on, mm -hmm. on uh, sat in on three astronaut class selections um really it's not the what you say and the answers to the questions it's sort of how you say it and as i said at the end of the day at that point all 100 people are qualified and it's you know did you get up on the right side of the bed that morning did, did you have any spinach in your teeth i mean it really is a lot of luck and when every candidate leaves the room the 12 or so astronauts on the selection board, you know, have a conversation. And the first question is, would you like to fly to space with that person? So it's really about getting along with people and working well on a team more than any kind of, you know, superhuman strength or super Einstein-like intelligence. Uh, because at that point, as, as I said, yeah. everybody's physically and uh, mentally qualified to do the job. It's more about, you know, being a team player. Wow, okay. and. So when you look at the numbers in terms of the number of people that apply to be astronauts, and then it slowly filters down, as you say, into this final, um, does that translate into a greater sense of responsibility once you've become one? Well, I think there's no doubt that we all feel very fortunate and, and sort of have a responsibility to you know, um, represent all the folks that, that didn't quite make it that far. I, I don't know the numbers when I was selected, but the last NASA selection, there were 18,300 applicants, qualified applicants, and they selected 12. So it's a pretty um, narrow funnel. And when you come out the other end, you know, you do feel a sense of, um, of duty to all of your fellow candidates, uh, you know, to represent them well. Wow, okay. Um, just, just a note to our audience. Thanks everyone who's tuning in. Remember, we're gonna be Having a live Q&A session towards the end of our talk, so save your questions until then. Um, Michael, let's have more about life on the ISS. Like, in in a nutshell, what is life like on the ISS? 
Well, it's a lot like life uh, on Earth in some respects. Uh, we have a routine. We work Monday through Friday and half a day Saturday. We wake up at uh, 6 a.m. and we go to bed at about 11 p.m. I'll say that we don't use the sun as a reference like we do on Earth because we go around the Earth once every 90 minutes, which means that every 45 minutes we're seeing either a sunrise or a sunset. So that would be pretty impractical to try <laughs> to live one day in 90 minutes. Uh, so we use uh, GMT, just like in the UK. Um, after we wake up, we have about an hour for breakfast, hygiene, you know, maybe catch up on email. Uh, then we have a series of conferences with the ground control teams around the world in Houston, in Moscow, in uh, Germany, and in Tokyo. Uh, and then we have a work day that starts um, and lasts for about nine hours. We get an hour for lunch. And in that, we also have two and a half hours every day for exercise. And the reason for that is in the absence of apparent gravity, it's very easy to get deconditioned and particularly to lose bone mass density. And that's a problem not to be in space, but when we come home from space. So we end up having to do a lot of exercise to preserve that. Then in the evening, we do sort of the same thing in reverse. We have that series of conferences again, you know, talk about how the day went, what to expect the next day, et cetera. Then we have an hour or so for dinner, again, relaxing, checking on email, and then it's bedtime. Rinse, repeat five times. Saturday morning, we uh, clean the space station, which is actually quite simple because since there's no gravity, there's no dust, or I should say the dust doesn't settle. It just gets trapped in the filters through the air circulation. So we just vacuum the filters and clean up any, any food stains or any spots that we may have uh, liberated while we're eating that didn't know. Um, and then the second half of Saturday and Sunday are, are free, although, again, we have to exercise every single day. So just like on Earth, the weekends go by pretty fast, and before you know it, it's Monday morning again. Uh, I mean, does it, does it feel like work, though? You know, it's in some ways it does. I'll say the overwhelming sense is that you really have a team that is supporting you and counting on you and watching you, and you really feel this sense of urgency and responsibility and duty to do your work as, as well as you can, as quickly as you can, and as efficiently as you can. So I flew uh, three shuttle missions before the space station mission. They were about two weeks each. And they talk about a shuttle being a sprint and a space station is like a marathon. And I always thought of myself, since I did them first, as more of a sprinter. And I was a bit worried that the long mission would become long and I'd be looking at my watch, when am I gonna come home? But I didn't feel that, and I think the reason is because I always had meaningful work to do, and I always stayed engaged and um, challenged by what I was doing. So it was quite pleasurable. I wouldn't, I would call it work. I wouldn't call it uh, drudgery. Well, that's good. And on your Expedition 14 mission on the Soyuz, uh, when you went, I think for over two, 200 days it was, uh, you did five spacewalks. And for those in our audience who don't know, uh, Michael actually has the NASA record for the most spacewalks, uh, also EVA or extravehicular activity. So you've stepped outside the space station more than any other NASA astronaut. Um, and I wanted to ask about that is, does it get easier because you've done it so many times and you, you had kind of practice on stepping outside the space station? 
I think probably a little bit. Let me just say the first one is, you know, the one that you're most anxious about. Um, and mm -hmm. I would say toward the end, I felt very comfortable. It, it was um, just like the launch. You've practiced it so many times that you're not really afraid. Um, you're just thinking about the tasks at hand. So my first uh, EVA, although we were docked to the space station, was out of the shuttle airlock, meaning into the shuttle's payload bay, which is a large kind of a protected environment. And I felt like I was pretty safe. Um, you know, you don't really see the environment. You're in this big white uh, kind of U-shaped canal. Um, the folks who do their first EVA from the space station airlock, it's quite a different experience. The hatch looks straight down at the earth. You're 250 miles, 400 kilometers above it. You're going five miles or eight kilometers per second. And as soon as you open the hatch, you're looking straight down at the earth. So that's a little bit more of a white knuckled experience. But I could tell you that by the time I did, you know, numbers nine and 10, I was feeling pretty comfortable. Wow, that's, that's so interesting. Um, and I read that on your SCS-92 mission, your second uh, space shuttle mission, you actually tested the safer jet um, jetpack. Um, yeah. And I was super interested to like, find out about how that experience was. Like you actually tested so the back jetpack in the outside the space station. Yeah. Back in the 80s, we had uh, a no kidding jetpack called a man maneuvering unit. And it was very sophisticated. It had lots of levels of redundancy. And it was basically a, a satellite propulsion system. So you they could actually leave the environment of the space shuttle and go try to retrieve objects like satellites that needed to be repaired, et cetera. They abandoned that program in the mid eighties. And what we had, uh, which you refer to as a SAFER, that stands for Simplified Aid for EVA Rescue. And simplified, it's, it's just that. There's no redundancy. There's one set of thrusters. It's a cold gas system. And EVA Rescue is what it's for. So back in the days of the manned maneuvering unit, if something were to fail, even with all those redundant systems, the shuttle could just go get you. It was like a car. You could just drive over there and pick the person up. Well, it's not very possible to maneuver the 450-ton space station to go chase you down. So if we ever were to be detached, I mean, generally, we're always attached to structure with a, a steel-braided tether. Uh, we're in a bad shape because uh, there's no, you know, you can't just pretend you're swimming and make yourself, you make your way back to the space station. So this backpack device is meant to do a simplified rescue. So you deploy the hand controller, you find the space station and you pulse your way back. And I got to test it, although I'll, I'll point out, I was tethered when I did it, but the tether was being held by my uh, crewmate. So it wasn't exerting any force on my direction. And the point was a qualitative evaluation is just to see if the, if the real safer flew like the one that we train in, in, in virtual reality. And the answer was, yes, it does. Uh, and when, when you were doing that, did you feel like Iron Man? <laughs> I had never heard of Iron Man. This was in 2000. Uh, okay. Uh, it just reminds me of the scene from The Martian. Um, and we never go by a space door live talk without mentioning the Martian, but that uh, the the imagination of you outside the space station with the jetpack just reminds me of the last scene in the Martian. <laughs> um, 
a little bit more about spacewalks because uh, you're the most experienced astronaut in spacewalks. Is how is when you're on the ISS? How is it? How is the build up to it? Because it's like, firstly, you're in an incredible place already, but now you're going to do something even. Worse. Yeah, a spacewalk is not like any routine activity. The whole crew gets into it ahead of time, and we have to prepare the suits, we have to prepare the tools, we have to prepare the airlock. So it's usually you know several days of prep work, getting ready to do the spacewalk. And the day you, you of the spacewalk, you know you get up, you start um, donning the uh, the spacesuit, which is a quite a procedure in itself. Because of decompression sickness, we have to try to eliminate as much nitrogen as we can from our blood. And we can do that in several ways. The way they're doing it now is they do some exercise, um, modified exercise while they're breathing 100% oxygen. When I was on board, we did what we call camp out and we would get into the airlock and close the hatch to the space station, reduce the pressure to about two thirds of a normal atmosphere and, and spend the night in there, basically sleep in there. And that did the same thing. But then you start putting on, you start with the LC, well, first you start with a diaper because you're in the suit for probably, you know, nine hours or so. And obviously you don't want to be caught needing one when you don't have one. Then we put on the liquid <laughs> cooling and ventilation garment, which is kind of a one piece uh, jumpsuit that has small tubes sewn into it. And the purpose is those tubes carry water that keeps your body cool. So once you're inside the suit, believe it or not, there's nowhere for the heat that your body generates when you're working to go. And therefore you need some means to remove the cooling or the heat and, and we use this water fluid. Then you put on the LTA, lower torso assembly, which is basically pants and the boots all integrated into one. Then you get up underneath the hut, the hard upper torso, which is kind of like uh, a jacket, I suppose. Um, and you go in from the bottom and you sort of stick your hands up first and push yourself through and your head pops out the top and your arms come out the side. Then you put the gloves on, you, you close the waist ring that connects those two first paces and then finally the helmet. And then they take you off the, uh, the donning stand, which is the, the, um, the part of the airlock that you're sort of hanging on and where the suit is attached to. And they put you in the crew lock, which is sort of a small compartment in the airlock. It's the part that gets actually sent to vacuum. After you've put all the tools on, close the, the hatch, evacuate the uh, crew lock, open the outer hatch, go outside and spend, you know, six and a half or seven hours doing work out there. Wow. That sounds, that sounds so exciting. Um, and do you think uh, with going forward in terms of commercial um, privately funded uh, human space flight. Do you think spacewalks are going to be something people get to try? Because I know most of your spacewalks are usually to kind of repair something on the ISS or help fit another module, or um, it's usually something technical. It's not just to have have a feeling of a spacewalk. Right. It's definitely you know a sort of a means of last resort to get something done. If it's something has to be changed or replaced on the outside of the space station, that's you know the only game in town. Now, now we do a lot of that work robotically with a robotic arm, but there are some things that you just need human hands on. I do think I can tell you that there is a huge demand for the for doing a spacewalk on the part of private astronauts. 
Um, unfortunately, the space suits that NASA and uh, other agencies own are consumable, meaning every time you use it, you take off some of its useful life. And so they're not very keen on letting us use those, I'll say, for fun, um, because <laughs> they have to preserve them for as long as they can. But Axiom is is thinking about potentially producing a spacesuit of its own that we could have obviously then control. And that would be a wonderful uh, opportunity for for private citizens to experience because of all the aspects of spaceflight, doing a spacewalk is absolutely at the top of the list. Yeah, I'm sure it is. I'm sure it is, as it is for many of our audience. Um, so let us know if, if what you think about uh, doing a spacewalk in the chat. Um, a little bit more about kind of life on the ISS and your crewmates. Um, and I wanted to talk about kind of, do you kind of become, do you become family because you're there for so long, uh, especially in terms of your, um, your Soyuz mission, uh, Expedition 14? A hundred percent. And I'll tell you on the shuttle missions, which only last two weeks or so, it's the same. And it's because you spend so much time training. We spend about a year uh, in advance of every shuttle mission training. And for an ISS mission, it's more than two years. So you can imagine after you spend so much time with somebody and then forget the seven months we spent together in a very close environment. Yeah, my uh, my crewmate, Mikhail Turan, Misha, he's like my brother. Anusha is the lady pictured here and she's the one that came up and kind of made me have this epiphany about commercial human spaceflight. Unfortunately, she only spent about eight days and then went home. Um, and then there was a, another a gentleman who came up on the Soyuz mission that relieved us um, with whom we flew. So yeah, we're very, you, you tend to stay in touch with uh, people you spend that much quality time with. Wow, that's, that's so interesting to find out. And who are, who are you here with? So this was during the mission of STS-116. It was a shuttle flight that came up during my time on the ISS. And on the right here is Sunita or Sunny Williams. She and I did three spacewalks together. Uh, this was her first flight. She did great as, a, as an EV-2, a spacewalker. And she has since flown on and commanded the ISS and is now in line to fly in her third mission uh, within the next year or two. Wow, okay, that's incredibly exciting. Um, and I believe this is you doing something outside the ISS as well. Yes, this is on my uh, second mission, first spacewalk actually, STS-92. And you see in my left hand, I have what we call a PGT, a pistol grip tool. It's basically a very expensive cordless uh, screwdriver <laughs> and I'm <laughs> loosening or tightening, I can't tell from here, some bolts that are holding some fluid lines down. You can see that my feet are in, uh, an articulating portable foot restraint, APFR, which is attached to the robotic arm, which you can see at the top right corner. And then that device there with the, uh, the tether and then the sort of peanut shaped reel is my safety tether. So that reel actually retracts to keep that line relatively taut. Otherwise it'd be a big mess of spaghetti uh, while you're out there, but we're always tethered um, to structure and the, I, the robotic arm is considered structure in this case, anytime we're outside. And finally, you can see that um, thing on my back. So all the backpack has a portable life support in it, but that thing that says number four, that's the safer, the simplified for EVA rescue, simplified uh, 
aid for EVA rescue, which you see uh, attached to me there. Wow. Well, let's let's step back um, to life on Earth a little bit. Let's just talk a little bit about um, quickly how how is the readjusting schedule like? What, like uh, I think there was a question from one of our audiences as well. They're asking, what is it like when you step back down to Earth? Well, being in space is amazingly enjoyable and, and floating around in microgravity is great. You know, you want to go from one side of a module to the other, you just kind of push off with your finger and you keep going that way until something gets in your way. But coming back to Earth can be pretty rough, uh, especially the longer you spend in space and your body becomes more acclimated. So the first thing you notice is some people have what we call orthostatic intolerance, which means they feel faint when they stand up. And I'm going to put this in, you know, my simplified pilot language, but, you know, your blood, I mean, your heart when you're on earth uh, is used to pumping blood to your brain pretty much uphill against gravity. Well, when you're in space, it doesn't need to work so hard because there's no gravity gradient. When you come back, you kind of need that to re-engage right away. Um, and some people have some issues with that. That usually just lasts for minutes or so. The next thing that takes a while to, to get back to normal is your sense of balance. So when we're on earth, we have, you know, you, you probably understand in your semicircular canals in your inner ear, fluid that moves against these very fine uh, hairs, basically, they call them cilia. And that gives your brain some signals as to which way is up and, and any accelerations that you have. Well, in space, there is no up. And so mm -hmm. your brain gets uh, is wisely disconnects that that feeling, and you kind of lose that sense of balance. And when you come back, it takes a while for that to reconnect. As long as your eyes are open, it's pretty obvious which way is up. But you could be standing up, close your eyes, and fall over immediately because you lose that secondary cue about that balance. Uh -huh. And then finally, and I guess most persistently things are heavy, you know, when you come back, uh, including <laughs> yeah. Yeah. and there's kind of a, a sense of fatigue and, and everything being a little more um, difficult than it is in space. So overall, they say anecdotally that it takes about a day on Earth for every day you're in space to be 100% back to normal. I don't know if that's true for missions that last, you know, six or seven months, but definitely for short duration, you know, two-week missions, that's about right. Okay, that's so, so interesting. And the reason reason we started talking about life back on Earth uh, is, is that for our new viewers who are joining us on Space Store Live and have not come across Space Store before, um, and Space Store is a startup which started um, only a couple of years ago in a small town in south of Oxfordshire in the UK. And we're, uh, we are an experiential store, um, and our mission is basically to bring space to everyone and that is that is via space experiences uh, that are online in person. Um, and part, part one of our one of my, one of my favorite experiences that we do is uh, you see one of my colleagues dressed in a spacesuit. So you can actually come down to the space store and get in a spacesuit, get in a real space, a replica spacesuit, I should say, um, and really experience space through virtual reality and all sorts of other cool experiences. Um, and Michael has actually been involved with Space Store right from the start. Um, do you want to tell us a little bit more about your role with Space Store? Um, because I know you, 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 were, you were with Space Store even before I was. 
Yeah, sure. I, it's very simple. I'm uh, an advisor on the board of advisors, and um, you know, my job is to sort of validate the experiences that are being offered. And um, you know, it's a very exciting and promising time. I think obviously last year was difficult for any small business, particularly startups, but uh, we did relatively well, and we're looking for great things in the future. Awesome. What what are you most excited about Spacedog going forward? Well, as I said, I, I'm a big believer in this idea of democratizing space. And, uh, you know, there are something like 560 people in the history of humanity have ever been to space. That's not very many. And it, it's going to be a long time before we can get a significant population to actually experience what it's truly like. So in the meantime, this kind of experience is the best, the closest thing we have to being able mm -hmm. to, to share what it's like. And I think that, you know, we talk about uh, certain effects of, of having flown in space and how it kind of makes you a, uh, a more tolerant, a more understanding, a more open-minded person. And even small experiences like you can do in the space store contribute just a little bit toward that uh, understanding. And I think that's all positive. Awesome. I think we're all really excited with what Space Tour is doing. Uh, let's move on to the next segment of our program. And we've got some pre-recorded kids questions for you to answer, Michael. Um, so here we go. I hope this works. My question is, what did you pack um, when you had to go to space? It's a great question, Maya. Uh, it turns out we don't really get to pack anything. Um, all of our things are packed for us our toothbrush, our hairbrush, our clothes, our food, everything is pre-packaged um, before we go. So when we get to space, it's just a question of finding where they are because sometimes they fly up before we do. And particularly in the case of food, um, generally people don't eat as much as I'll say they plan to eat. And so we end up eating the previous crew's food before we get to our food. But the packing is done for us by the space agency, NASA or the European Space Agency. Okay. Can you tell? Can you tell them? Oh, you want this and you want that. Um, yeah, I mean, on the food case, we taste everything on the menu and we rate it from one to nine, and then you're allowed to build your own menu. You know, generally, you don't want to pick anything that you gave a five or below to. It gets yeah. reviewed by a nutritionist, so you can have candy every day, four meals a day. Um, and then you get on board, and lo and behold, there it is. Awesome. All right, let's move on to our next question from the kids. What does Earth look like from outer space? Thank you. Well, so I don't know if you've been in an airplane before, but if you can imagine being in an airplane and just elevating that higher and higher and higher. So it doesn't look like the blue marble that you may have seen pictures of, at least from low earth orbit. Those pictures are taken by crews on their way to or on the way back from the moon or by very high orbiting satellites. But the earth is definitely round. Uh, it's mostly blue uh, with quite a bit of white, which are the clouds. And it's just spectacular. Um, I, I can't, emphasize enough how strong the emotion is when you fly over points on the earth that you can recognize and that are important to you, you know, where you're born, where you grew up, you know, these points where the entirety of human history have occurred. 
it, it's really quite an emotional uh, feeling to get to see those from from that vantage point. That's incredible. That's actually incredible. All right. What plants can you grow on the space station? That's a great question. Um, obviously, we don't have dirt in the space station to be able to grow. Um, and it's also a challenge to get sunlight because, as I said, we're inside and we're going around the Earth rather quickly. We didn't have any plant experiments when I was on board, although I think we did have a plant that was some kind of lettuce that was kind of a hobby for my uh, crewmate, Misha. But there is uh, an interesting article on the web that you can find if you just Google plants on ISS that will give you a rundown of all the stuff that's been grown. And I understand that they're actually able to eat some of it now. So that's pretty exciting because if we go onto the moon and especially on the Mars, we don't want to be taking our food with us. It's nice to, to grow it. Yeah, that sounds really exciting uh, in terms of actually being able to grow, grow food in space. All right, let's move on to our, <laughs> pretty much, yeah. I do, I do want to refer to it again. All right, let's move on to our next question from Isabella. Hi, my question is, how do you breathe without the spacesuit in the space rocket? Thank you, Isabella. Well, I'll say that when we're in space, either in the space station or on the space shuttle or on the Soyuz or wherever we are going, the air and the temperature and the pressure are just like they are where we are today. So there's no need for a spacesuit um, while you're inside. Definitely need to put one on if you're going outside. And we wear a different kind of spacesuit for launches and for re-entries in case there's an emergency. But in general, the conditions uh, of the atmosphere on the space station are the same as they are here on Earth. Wow, that's really interesting. Um, now, I've got a technical question coming up for you from Zachariah. Okay. Hi, my name is Zachariah. I was wondering if dark matter blocks out sunlight in space. That's a great question. Probably a better question for uh, an astronomer than an astronaut. But from what I understand, the answer is yes. And you know, gravity is a, is a function of the size of two bodies that are attracted to each other. In our case, one of the bodies is the Earth and the other body is us. And so the Earth is so massive that it pulls us down because of its mass. And these black holes have so much mass that they actually pull the light into them. That's what I understand, but I'm not an expert in that. That's a tough question, Zachariah. Uh, thank you so much, Zachariah, for that question. We've got Laya next. Um... Hi, my name is Elijah. And how does a booster work? Well, Elijah, a booster is basically taking some kind of propellant. It can be solid propellant, like what looks kind of like a pencil eraser, or it can be a liquid propellant, which is usually some kind of fuel and some kind of oxidizer mixes together and it creates a lot of pressure and that pressure gets directed out one end of the booster and the reaction is that the other end or the booster goes in the other direction so that's why if you ever see a rocket the the engine bells are pointed down the flame comes out and the rocket goes up 
great. I hope that answers your question. This question is going to get higher and harder. We've only got a few more left. Um, all right, next one. My question to an astronaut would be, is there an up or down in space? So that's a great question. Um, the answer is yes and no. In reality, uh, there is no up or down, and that's because we're in microgravity. Now, we're not in microgravity because we're so far away from the Earth. In fact, we're pretty close such that the gravity in, at 250 miles is almost the same as it is here. But the thing is, we're going very fast. And so we're basically falling around the planet. Imagine being in an elevator at the top of a very tall building and something happens and the cable breaks that's holding the elevator car up and it starts falling toward the earth and you're inside. Well, for a few brief happy seconds, you'll be floating weightless in there even though there is gravity until you get to the bottom. Mm -hmm. But in space, since we're falling around the planet in orbit, that just uh, keeps going indefinitely. And the reason that there, so that's why there is really is no up or any down because down is defined by the gravity vector that pulls you back to the center of the earth. But when we're inside the space station, all of the writing and all of the lighting is oriented in such a way that there is an up and a down. And so we tend to live our lives with our feet toward what we would call the deck or the floor and our heads toward what we would call the overhead or the ceiling. And the only reason for that is that's kind of the way things would be oriented on the ground. But as far as your body is concerned, it really makes no difference because there is no up or down. Awesome. Um, all right, uh, just got a note. We are kind of short on time. So thank you so much all those um, kids for sending in your questions. I hope you guys are actually tuning in live to watch this. Um, but let's move on, to, move on to the last segment of our show. Uh, thank you so much for answering those questions, Michael, from the kids. And we're going to try and answer all of your questions from the live Q&A. Uh, please send them in through. Um, we've, we've got a few uh, recent ones. Uh, one from Sue Palmer. Thank you for joining us, Sue. Um, and she's asking, um, she's interested in hearing what it's like to sleep on the ISS. Well, sleeping is interesting. Um, first of all, we sleep in a sleeping bag. And the reason for that really is more than anything just to keep us from floating around freely. So it's a sleeping bag that has uh, arm slits cut in it. So our arms kind of stick out. We zip it up and we fall asleep. I would say that we're generally pretty tired by the end of the day. So falling asleep is not challenging, but sometimes staying asleep is. And because of this absence of apparent gravity, on Earth, sometimes you wake up and you just roll over and it's a it's a really nice feeling and you go back to bed. But there is no rolling over, so it's a little bit more challenging. The sleeping bags are not always on the floor. In fact, generally they're on the walls. Sometimes they're on the ceiling. Again, this no up or no down is what allows mm -hmm. us to do that. But in order to get some of that feeling back of, you know, the nice when you're lying on your back feeling of rest, some people actually use bungee cords to hold themselves against the surface, whether it's the wall or the ceiling, to give them that sense of actually lying down on something horizontal. Wow, okay. That's so interesting. And how, a question in from Addy, uh, who's seven, and he's asking, how do you keep fit? 
Well, as I said, there's no trouble doing that. We have two and a half hours of exercise scheduled every day. About half of it is aerobic exercise. And for that, we have a cycle, basically a, a stationary bike. Um, and of course, for the bike, we have to use the kind of uh, shoes that have um, clips that allow us to attach to the pedals. So you're always, otherwise we'd be, you know, flying off every time you push down. And we have a treadmill Likewise, with the treadmill, we have to wear a harness that, that actually has attach points that holds us down to the surface. Otherwise, we just run off into space. And then the other kind of uh, exercise equipment we have is uh, basically it's a weight machine, even though there's no weights. We actually use uh, vacuum cylinders to provide the artificial sense of resistance. But those are the ones that are very important to be able to load up our bones, our skeletal structure to promote uh, bone growth and not lose bone mass density. Awesome. Thank you so much for your question, Adi. Now, Adi and, um, or Vasilis is actually asking a question, um, and he's saying, except for, you can't, you can't say in the Martian, by the way, he's saying, which Hollywood sci-fi blockbuster bugs you the least? Bugs me the least. Um, well, I'd have to say Apollo 13. I'm not sure I'd call that a, a sci-fi movie, but that's the one that I think is, uh, you know, closest to reality. And um, they really did their homework in it. But some of the recent ones, you mentioned The Martian is really great. Uh, there was a documentary film about Apollo 11, which which is has no actors. It's all uh, footage from newsreels um, with the voice being the narration in the moment by news anchors and and it's all stitched together beautifully which i find is is wonderful turns out i'm not a sci-fi fan a lot of my colleagues are but i never really got into it mm -hmm. wow okay that's interesting uh a nice note from sharon um she's just saying tell la his favorite suit text says hello <laughs> sharon it's good to hear you i uh i have my, one of my favorite pictures is getting uh, suited up in the suit room on STS-95 in September of 1990, STS-73 in September of 1995. Anyway, good memories. Good to hear your voice, so to speak. Awesome. Uh, we've got a question in from uh, Stargate, and he's asking, uh, do you think Axiom in the future will be affordable like the Zero-G flight in France? That's the hope. I mean, again, democratizing space uh, is not very democratic if you have to be a billionaire to fly. And unfortunately, that's kind of where we are today. But my firm belief is that over time, these prices will start to come down. And I point to the 1920s and 30s in the era of the uh, commercial aviation, the, the nascent era when it was first starting. And only very wealthy people could fly, could afford to fly um, on those early commercial airliners. And now, as I think we all know, people get on EasyJet to go to a birthday party. So I, I think that that's going to happen. It might take 100 years. It might take longer. But that's the hope. And we have to start somewhere. So here we are. Awesome. Another question in from Harvey, and he's asking, what do you think while on the launch pad about to launch? Now, of course, you've done this four times. So was it was it different each time? Yeah, I think it was a little bit different. You know, the first time you're probably a little bit more oddly, I think you're less worried about your own safety and more worried about your level of preparedness. Again, there's a lot of responsibility during the launch 
and you've been very expertly trained and you have people who are really counting on you. And that ends up being, you know, kind of a high pressure scenario. As the launches, you know, as I had more and more experience, I started actually to think maybe because I realized, you know, they say that when you light a rocket engine, 10,000 things can happen and only one of them is good. And you start thinking that a little bit more. But honestly, it's, um, it's a time to reflect. It's a time to concentrate. It's a time to let the emotions sink in because it's the, the effect of a countdown, the um, impact of watching a clock tick down, you know, from 10, 9, 8. I mean, there's nothing more exciting than that as you get to the final seconds because you know when it gets to zero, something very exciting is going to happen. Yeah, I think I think as um, as someone who's not, of course, been into space, I think that's a moment. I if I ever if if I ever get the opportunity to go into space, and I think uh, audience might agree with this is that moment of when you're literally going against Earth uh, up into space. That moment, and when you look back down, I think that is one that will probably be one of the most to cherish. Yeah, I. I... You know the acceleration that you feel and the whole launch is experience is amazing yeah. and then you get to space and you have zero gravity and then you look at the window and you see the views of the earth i mean there's nothing to not like about going to space well yeah definitely um a question in from it's not actually a question i think um george happy birthday your birthday is on saturday you're going to be five congratulations um i hope you have a good one um and he's space mad and he's asking if you think um if aliens are real. Well, George, first of all, happy birthday. And uh, in 20 years or so, let's uh, let's talk. It might be time for you to go to space, maybe even sooner. Uh, aliens. So here's my theory about intelligent life. I think that it's um, unlikely that here on Earth, we're the only ones in the vast, immense universe to have intelligent life. However, I also think that due to that same immensity and vastness, it's very unlikely that we'll ever encounter them. So do I believe in extraterrestrial life? I do, but I've never seen any evidence of it, and I would be very shocked if we do anytime soon. From Julian is, after your time in space, uh, what was the thing you really missed when you came back down to Earth? So what did I miss about space being on Earth? Um, I think it's all yeah. the things I just described. You know, it's the amazing views out the window all the time. You get used to being in zero gravity, but it's it's uh, it's kind of addicting. Um, I remember that after one of my early missions, a couple of days after landing, I actually let go of a glass because I wasn't, you know, in the same I was thinking about being in space and, and not on Earth, and lo and behold, gravity worked and the glass went crashing down to the floor. So those are the kinds of things. And when I was in space, I dreamed about being in space. And as I got back to Earth, you know, I, I continued to dream about being in space, but they got less and less frequent. And now I rarely dream about being in space. So I think it's just a question of, you know, what is in your recent uh, experience base? Or you'll be going back up next year, so those dreams might be coming back. Here's hope. Okay. Yeah, a question from Dimitri saying, Hi, Michael. Which daily routine did you find to be the hardest to complete on the ISS um, as opposed to being on Earth? 
if I can be a little bit indelicate, going to the bathroom in space is a little tough, to be honest. Um, uh, after that, I would say exercise, only because we had to do so much of it every single day. Uh, some people really like the stress relief and all that, but um, I found it to be a, a little bit tedious. And now, as I get a bit older, I'm, I'm more interested in an exercise routine. But back then, you know, exercise was kind of a chore. And in space, you know, that much of it is a real chore. Great, yeah. Thank you so much for your question, Demetrius. Thank you for tuning in. Um, and last question from our audience coming up from Michelle Wilson. And she's asking, what was your favorite moment out in space? That's tough. I think there are lots of, uh, you know, those experiences are, are so uh, singular and, and memorable each in their own right. But I have to, I recall one, it was on my second mission. We were building the space station. Nobody was living on board yet. It was basically a couple of modules. And we had brought up a couple of pretty big pieces that we attached to the outside and done some spacewalks. And we had finished all that and we were allowed to spend the night to sleep on the space station on our last night there. And it was still, um, as I said, uninhabited. So there were no lights, uh, there were no fans, there were no pumps, there was no noise. A couple of my crewmates were already asleep and I was the last one and we had some portable lights and I had to turn off the light before I went to bed, but my sleeping bag was on the other side of the module. And I had to figure out how to get from where I was to where I needed to be without disturbing anybody. And so I kind of took aim, I turned off the light and I pushed off. And because it was dark and because I was floating and because there were no machinery running, I could hear nothing, I could feel nothing and I could see nothing. And that moment, you know, I, it was magical. It didn't last um, very long because I ended up making it to my sleeping bag, but it was, pure bliss for just a few short seconds. Wow, wow. That, just, that just sounds uh, inspiring. Um, so yeah, just um, a note to our audience. Thank you so much for tuning in, guys. Uh, I'm sorry to everyone who, whose questions we haven't been able to answer. It's been an absolute joy speaking to you, Michael. Um, um, it's it's been it's been such an amazing talk. I've thoroughly enjoyed speaking to you. A uh, big thank you to everyone who's tuned in, wherever you're joining us from across the world. Once again, thank you so much for your questions. They've been uh, really really interesting. And hi to all the kids who sent in their questions. Um, thank you for supporting Space Door. Um, thank you, Stargate. Um, Michael, how did you find it? Yeah, it's great. I'd like to jump in and say thanks to all the uh, viewers and, and listeners. I mean, the questions were very thoughtful. The kids' uh, questions were great. And it was a real pleasure for me to participate. So thank you and the Space Art team for putting it together. Thank you for listening to the Meet an Astronaut special on the Space Talk podcast. You can tune in live to our Space Talks, Space Roundups and special events and be part of the Q&A on our YouTube channel youtube.com forward slash space or live and whilst you're there catch up with any episodes that you've missed like what you heard today support us by visiting our website spacedoor.co and check out how we're bringing space to everyone everywhere every day